Delaware Islands, because of a dark betrayal, our frontier will soon collapse. So we turn to you, star fighters and your navigators, for of all the billions of creatures in the Star League, only you few were found to possess the gift. You, and you alone, stand between us and the black terror of the Kodan. Victory or death! Victory or death! Victory or death! Victory or death! Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 85, Victory or Death. Hello and welcome to episode 85 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I've got a look at what I think is one of the greatest underrated gems of the 1980s science fiction genre, and that is 1984's The Last Starfighter. I'm going to do what I usually do with any movie that I cover on this show, which is walk through the plot and give my review, but I'm also going to talk briefly about the novelization by Alan Dean Foster, as well as the Marvel Comics adaptation, and delve into what, if anything, there is beyond the movie, including a video game, an aborted toy line, and talks of a sequel. Now, if you're from the 80s, you probably remember The Last Starfighter, although it's possible you have not watched it in a number of years. That's okay, because it was not a huge hit. According to Wikipedia and Box Office Mojo, the movie, which was released on July 13, 1984, made $28.7 million on a $15 million budget. That is a profitable production, unless you're kind of doing Hollywood math, I guess. But I don't think that would be a hit, especially in 1984, which is one of the best years of the 80s for movies. The Last Starfighter was the 31st highest grossing movie of the year, and it finished just behind David Lynch's film adaptation of Dune, 
which was in 28th place with $30.9 million. And it was one spot behind John Carpenter's Starman, which was in 30th place and only made about $11,000 more in box office than our movie. Both of those films are not considered huge hits. In fact, this is conjecture on my part, but I'm pretty sure that Dune is considered a bit of a flop. I mean, it has its fans, and Starman is well-regarded from what I remember about it, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, and Carpenter's film it has a, a little bit of a cult following than a, a lot of Carpenter's films do. Interestingly, by the way, a movie that would go on to be a huge franchise, The Terminator, was the 21st highest grossing film of the year with $38 million. But when you think of the fact that by the time Terminator 2 Judgment Day was released in the early 90s, its star and its director had made huge names for themselves. So that's the film spawning a franchise makes sense. And honestly, The Terminator is probably worth its own episode or series of episodes. Anyway... I make the point of comparison that I am making here, not just because it's what I usually do. I think it's important to point out that this film never really achieved the status that you'd think it would, especially considering it's a plot about a regular kid who's good at a video game being plucked from Earth and put into a galactic war. The type of fantasy that kids who had just seen Return of the Jedi multiple times the year before would have been primed to see. But as I was saying, this was the summer of 1984. Here are your top 10 films from that year. Number one is Beverly Hills Cop. Two was Ghostbusters. Three was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Four was Gremlins. Five was The Karate Kid. Six was Police Academy. Seven, Footloose. Eight, Romancing the Stone. Nine, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. And ten... Splash. Now, take away the comedies that kids my age, and I was seven years old at the time, would not have been allowed to see, and ignore Footloose, which I probably wouldn't have wanted to see. And you have five out of the top ten movies that were competing for interest from kids my age or a little older. All right, Star Trek 3 is a bit debatable, but I put it in there because it's a science fiction movie, and we are talking about a science fiction movie. Contrast that with 1985, where you have The Goonies and Back to the Future. Perhaps if The Last Starfighter was released a year later, it would have fared better. I'm not exactly sure about that, but it's, it's nice to speculate. But what I am sure of is that I really want to get into this movie and talk about what I think of it. And I'll do that after this. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert! Shields up. What shields? You start the officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Come 
Alex Rogan had a dream. You really are leaving here, aren't you? To be as far away from here as possible. You get your chance. When it comes, you gotta grab it with both hands. It started with a game. You gonna bust the record! But it wasn't just any game. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Sur and the Kodan Armada. And then, one night... Centauri's the name. We have to talk about a matter of utmost importance. Step into my office. I've seen him come and I've seen him go, but you're the best, my boy. Light years ahead of the competition. Hey. Alex didn't find his dream. my boy a world on the brink of destruction you were recruited by the starling to defend, to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada of all the life forms on all the planets in all the galaxies been chosen. Alex Rogan. Alex? I'm Alex. Is the last starfighter. For every Earthling who's ever imagined traveling beyond the stars. Maybe there is a starfighter left. I love you, Alex Rogan. The unforgettable story of one who made it. <laughs> the Last Starfighter. Greetings, Starfighter. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. So begins the video game Starfighter, which has been the main attraction for Alex Rogan, played by Lance Guest, at the Starlight Starbright Trailer Park where he lives in Northern California. Alex is a senior in high school who has ambitions beyond the trailer park where he lives with his mom, who's played by Barbara Bossom, and his annoying little brother, Louis, who's played by Chris Habert. But those dreams are pretty quickly dashed when he gets a letter that says the financial aid he hoped would come through and help him go away to college instead of attending the local JC isn't going to happen. So all he has really going for him is his girlfriend Maggie, who's played by Catherine Mary Stewart, and his constant high score on the Starfighter video game, which he pumps quarters into on a regular basis. It's his escape from the outlook of a life living in this trailer park and fixing the electronics and TV antenna of its various residents, which is a bit of a motley crew of senior citizens and other quirky characters. One night, Alex, quotes breaks the record on Starfighter. And this is an event that seemingly everyone in the trailer park is interested in, cheering him on while he does it. Later that same night, though, while everyone is asleep, the machine turns itself on and begins making strange noises. 
Alex notices, and when he goes to investigate, a sleek-looking car pulls up to the trailer park, and the driver asks for Alex Rogan. Alex says, that's me, and the strange man introduces himself as Centauri. He is played by Robert Preston, who is best known for his role as Harold Hill in The Music Man. Incidentally, this is his last film role. He would be in two TV movies after this before his death in 1987. Centauri has Alex get into his car where he is seated next to something called a beta unit. We see that the car is not a car, but it is a spaceship, and Centauri is actually a green-skinned alien with glowing yellow eyes. They go into hyperspeed and are taken to the planet Rylos, because you see the Starfighter game was actually a recruiting tool for the Ryland Star League, which is at war with the Kodan Empire, and the Gunstar battleship that Alex was piloting in this game actually exists. When Alex arrives at Rylos, he is shocked, bewildered, and a bit scared about what he's gotten himself into. Centauri, it should be said, seems to have a reputation as a bit of a con man or a grifter and was actually never supposed to recruit from Earth because it is not part of the Star League. In fact, the machine that Alex played was not supposed to be at the trailer park. It was supposed to be shipped to Vegas. And there's a few great lines of dialogue from Centauri about how it was supposed to be manufactured and available by Christmas, which is, I guess, meta-commentary about the video game market. Anyway, after a little brusque back and forth with other aliens and Alex being fitted with a universal translator, Alex meets Grig, who's played by Dan O'Herlihy, who you probably will remember as the CEO of OCP and Robocop an alien who will be his pilot on his Gunstar. They sit through a briefing where Alex learns that Rylos is very vulnerable. For years, they've been protected by the Frontier, which is an array of satellites that protects Rylos and its systems from an invasion. Think something similar to like the Tholian web. But Zor, who is played by Norman Snow, is the traitorous son of the leader of Rylos in the Star League, has given the Kodan the key to breaking through the frontier in exchange for being given Rylos to rule after the Kodan invade. Alex, seeing that this could mean his death, wants no part of it, and he asks Centauri to bring him home. And meanwhile, back home, Alex has been replaced by a bit that beta unit, and that is an android that's made to look like him and have his mannerisms. It's got okay for the most part, except for the fact that the beta unit isn't so up on the hormonal urges and sex rituals of the American teenager, and he winds up completely offending Maggie. And then he's caught off guard by the fact that Alex returns home earlier than expected. The shenanigans are broken up, however, by Alex and the beta unit getting attacked by an alien assassin called the Zandozan that was sent by Zer to kill Alex. Centauri saves them, but is injured in the process. He tells Alex that the only way to protect his family is to return to Rylos because unless he finds a way to defeat Zer and the Kodan, they'll keep sending aliens to kill him and those he loves. Alex gets into Centauri's ship and heads out. Upon arriving at Rylos, they see that the Starfighter base has been mostly destroyed by a Kodan attack, and Centauri dies from his injuries. Alex finds that Grig is alive, and there is one Gunstar left. It's a newer, enhanced ship that was being docked in a separate place because of its experimental nature. The controls in the ship really are exactly the same thing as the video game, and Grig starts training Alex, who, well, is the last Starfighter. On Earth, more Zandozan arrive, and the Beta unit is forced to tell Maggie everything about what's been going on. 
She doesn't believe him, but once the Zandozan attack him and he's shot, she sees his circuitry and she obviously believes him. Eventually, that beta unit sacrifices himself by running the pickup truck owned by one of the bigger jerks at Alex's high school into the Zandozan's ship, killing all of them. Alex and Grig head out to space to fight off, face off against the Kodan. They attack the mothership, crippling its communication system, and then take on a squad of Kodan fighters, destroying them all by using a secret weapon they call the Death Blossom. This is basically something that fires everything at once and in all directions. On board the Kodan mothership, Lord Krill, who was head of the Kodan fleet, orders Zura's incarceration and execution because he basically blames them for his failure. But Zura escapes before they can get him. The Kodan are going to ram the Gunstar and knock it out, which might work because the Death Blossom more or less drained the ship of all its power except for life support. Grig manages to rewire the controls to get some power restored. Alex dodges the mothership and shoots, destroying its guidance system. And what happens next? Well, the gravitational pull of Rylos' nearby moon proves too much for the mothership, and... What do we do? We die. Alex lands on Rylos, and he is Hail the Hero. He also reunites with Centauri, who is now alive, having gone through a healing stasis. The Ryland Star League points out that they are vulnerable, since Zor is still at large and their frontier has been destroyed, and this leads Alex to decide to stay on Rylos and train more starfighters. But first, he returns home to the trailer park to say goodbye to his mom and asks Maggie to head to the stars with him. She agrees, and after he takes off, we see Lewis at the Starfire game, hoping to become as great as his big brother. Now, I first saw this movie after it was released on home video, and that was in November 1984 now, so I probably saw it in 85. And since by then all our our local all-time favorite video store, Sables Video Empire, had opened, we were a regular customer. My dad probably rented this and we watched it. I do know I have the hardcover storybook for this, which if you don't remember what those are, this was a young reader's adaptation of the film with stills from the movie as illustrations. I had the ones from Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, and I remember having that because probably because I really enjoyed the movie and my parents found it like Toys R Us or something, and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I definitely watched it more than a few times when I was a kid before I eventually moved on to other films or television series that interested me. And honestly, I didn't see it again until a couple of years ago when Andy Leyland and Scott Gardner discussed the film on an episode of Palace of Glittering Delights, which is definitely a companion to this show and this podcast episode. It's worth listening to for reasons just beyond that last Starfighter episode, but I really, really go and listen to the two of them talk about it because they really do enjoy it. So as a result of them, um, you know, seeing it, and talking about it, I, I went back and watched it, and I was amazed then at how well the film held up after my not seeing it in about 30 years. And a year or two later, after a student gave me a Walmart gift card as an end-of-the-year thank-you gift, I found this in the Blu-ray discount bin, and I think it was about 10 bucks, so I couldn't pass it up. In fact, I showed this movie to Brett a couple of months ago, and he really enjoyed it. The late Gene Siskel is quoted on the Wikipedia page for the film as calling the film a, quote, a guilty pleasure and saying that it was a Star Wars ripoff, but the best Star Wars ripoff, you know, but the best one. And honestly, I don't think that the film hides the fact that it's derivative or what was then of what was then only a trilogy of Star Wars films. 
Nick Castle, the film's director, had only directed one film prior to this, the college comedy drama Tag, and he was probably best known for being one of the writers on John Carpenter's Escape from New York, as well as for playing Michael Myers in the original Halloween, and I think other Halloween movies as well. Plus, this was put into production in 1983 or so, which was the year of Return of the Jedi, a movie that, while it didn't make as much as the original Star Wars, was still huge and still incredibly profitable for anyone who had a stake in either the film's box office and its merchandising, especially its merchandising. So yes, it is a Star Wars ripoff, but I agree with Mr. Siskel, it's one of the better ones. It works so well. And it works on so many levels. The plot is a total kid fantasy put to screen. Video games had more or less crashed the year before and wouldn't really recover until about 85 or 86, but they were still enough in the public consciousness for placement in a movie to work. And being good at a video game leading to actually being the pilot of a spaceship was totally awesome. I mean, I think it helps that Lance Guest was perfectly cast. I think I've only ever ever seen him in Jaws the Revenge, which is not a good movie. But he's a pretty long career in film and television, and he he really had the look and attitude that resembles like a likable teenage kid. And funny enough, actually, he kind of resembles Jeff East, who played young Clark Kent in Superman the movie. Anyway, Guest also imbues Alex with a lot of wit and a lack of total awareness of irony that lends itself well to the plot. I've said it before that there are a couple of things that annoy me about teenagers and adventure films in the last couple of decades. One is that it doesn't take them long to know how, how to do everything. Now, in this film, Alex knows how to do everything because it's well established that the video game was designed to be a training tool. So the controls of the video game and the Gunstar are one-to-one. So it's actually like it, the video game is a flight simulator. And then he goes from the flight simulator to getting to the actual cockpit. So it makes sense. I mean, there's also a little bit of a learning curve. Before, they they don't just go out and fight the Armada. He does a little target practice. He has to kind of get into... And his first kind of fights, dogfights and stuff, are a little bit tougher for him. He has to get into the role of the Starfighter. So they play that well. The other thing that irritates me (laughs) about more modern teenage movies is that sort of ironic, self-aware, snarky, I'm ready for anything attitude. You know, Alex insists on going back home from Rylos because he sees that he's been pulled into a war he was not ready for, and he's honestly scared. Then, when he does go and fight, he's hesitant at first. I mean, the idea that this isn't a game anymore is handled with deftness. It's not overdone, but at the same time, we're never asking ourselves how realistic it is and that, oh, all of a sudden, he's the hero. The rest of the cast is also really good. Now... I've had a crush on Catherine Mary Stewart since she was in Weekend at Bernie's. And she also happens to be in one of my favorite cult classic sci-fi movies, Night of the Comet. But she's really good as Maggie. She plays her as a girlfriend who isn't passive and boring or whiny. And she has some spunk to her, but she's supportive and caring. It's a really well-done character. You're supposed to get the feeling that Maggie not only wants Alex to succeed in life but she wants out of that trailer park as well, and she wants a better life for herself. Even though, by the way, the trailer park is not portrayed as some sort of sad, destitute dead end. This isn't some meth-addled community in the middle of, like, Deliverance or Winter's Bone or any of those types of things. This is quirky. It's filled with old people. It's got kitsch. It's, 
you know, the two of them want to get out of this because they're young and they're tired and they're bored with their existence and they've had, they have wanderlust. It's the same thing that any suburban teenager might have had from the 80s and the 90s. Alex is probably more desperate than Mackie, but it's not a do-or-die situation like it could have been if they were in um, what we think of trailer parks in this day and age. And speaking of which, the people in the trailer park do provide a fair amount of light comic relief, especially Lewis, who's the annoying little brother, is cut from the same mold that we would see Seth Green's Chucky from Can't Buy Me Love, which came out a few years later, and I covered it all the way back in like episode, God, was it five or six of this show years ago? Uh, Lewis is a smart-ass kid who has a secret collection of Playboys, but also spies his brother kissing Maggie and is all, Diarrhea! That's pretty much exactly how he says it. And by the way, a personal interjection here. There's a scene where Alex says, um, Back to sleep, Lewis, or I'm telling Mom about your Playboys. And Brett, when we're watching this, turned to me and was like, What's a Playboy? So I had to briefly explain to him that it was a dirty magazine. In the middle of watching this movie, which is not something I needed clarification when I was his age. But then again, does anybody actually buy Playboys anymore? I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, those little bits of comic relief actually work, uh, especially some of the stuff with the beta unit, which, by the way, was added to the movie after test audiences responded positively to it. So they had the film, the test audiences liked the beta unit, they went back, and um, I think you can see that Lance uh, Guest is wearing a bit of a wig or, or something, because he had his hair had changed when they went to do the reshoots because uh, he was filming another movie or something. And so what they did was they put a wig on him. And the But since it's like the Beatty unit, it, it the fact that he's obviously like wearing a wig, or it's not like completely obvious, but the fact that it looks slightly off lends to the Beatty unit stuff. So that's pretty impressive. Um, there are two pretty funny scenes involving Lewis and the Beatty unit, which um, could get like really bad, could get like really cheesy and not hold up as well. But the actors do a good job of selling it. And, and the first one is where Alex comes home and sees the Beatty unit, and then they start arguing with one another, which leads Lewis to waking up and both of them telling to you, "Well, this is where we have the whole thing, like you know, go to sleep." Where I'm telling mom about your Playboys thing, and the other is the Beatty unit is having an audio malfunction and it. He literally takes off his own head and he does repairs on his head Alex at Alex's desk. And Lewis wakes up during this and he's told that he's basically having a nightmare and he needs to go back to sleep. And it's silly. It could be a little groan worthy, but Guest is a really solid actor and he's charming. And the kid who plays Lewis is precocious enough, annoying enough, and bratty enough and doesn't go over the top in any direction. And I, and I, um, I really appreciated that. Comic relief, though, not the reason you watch The Last Starfighter. It's battles. It's battles with space aliens. And these are unique in themselves because most of the effects in the film were done with computers and completely computer-generated. We're, we're used to a lot of CGI in movies. I mean, God, it's gotten to the point where it's like second nature. But The Last Starfighter really was one of the first, if not the first movie, to pretty much have all of its effects done on a computer. According to Wikipedia, in place of physical models, 3D rendered models were used to depict spaceships and any other objects. You know, the Gunstar and other spaceships were the design of artist Ron Cobb. He had also worked on Alien, Star Wars, and Conan the Barbarian. And the, the computer graphics for the film 
were rendered by Digital Productions on a Cray XMP supercomputer. The company actually created 27 minutes of effects for the film. It was considered an enormous amount of computer-generated imagery at the time, and for the 300 scenes containing computer graphics in the film, each frame of animation contained an average of 250,000 polygons. It had a resolution of 3,000 by 5,000 36-bit digital pixels. Digital productions estimate that using computer animation required only half the time and one-half to one-third the cost of traditional special effects. The result was a cost of $14 million that for a film that made what I think was like about $28.7 million. And to be honest, those computer graphics for 1984 hold up much better than, I don't know, some of the CGI of the early 90s. Yeah, watching this on the Blu-ray, you definitely can tell that this is early CGI. And I've had those conversations and I've heard other podcasters like Mike Bailey and people talk about how some of these movies were never made anticipating HD television. We're never anticipating that their effects were going to look like that you could see the man behind the curtain because when transferred to home video in the 80s, the the resolution and the screen, it, it would have looked a little more seamless. Here, it's very much obvious that this is computer animation, but at the same time, it doesn't look lazy. And that's my issue with a lot of 90s CGI, at least early 90s CGI, where they were going for, like, this is CGI, but at the same time, it just it did start to look very, very lazy after a little while. And maybe that's just because the budget was there, whatever the budgets were. I mean, Brett has seen everything from cartoons to movies that use computer animation. He thought the effects were well done. I mean, he's 10, but he still thought the effects were well done. And plus, the space battle itself is well choreographed. And the villains are good. This is the thing. Like, you can have all the effects you want, but if the if the stuff's not choreographed or shot well or the villains are terrible, you're not going to have a good movie. The Codan are a mishmash of various space villains. There's obviously something taken from Star Wars, there's a little bit of Klingon in them, and maybe even pieces from recent shows such as V, which had aired the year before, right around the time this was in production. Norman Snow as Zorus is petulant as Kylo Ren would be, but whereas Adam Driver plays his character well, Snow gets away with more than his recommended daily allowance of fiber by chewing the scenery. I mean, he goes for it on a slight level slightly above Ricardo Montalban as Khan, but he doesn't go full Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest or Supergirl, so there's some restraint there. However, I will say that one of the best things about Norman Snow's portrayal of Zur is that the character is so annoying that even the people he has allied himself with cannot stand him. Uh, there's a point, so like he's this over-the-top, power-hungry, like, man-baby, and all the Kodan are just like, tolerating him. And there's even a point where he's on the bridge, barking orders, showing off his giant scepter, that because he's overcompensating of his lack for, well, you know, anything. And in the middle of the rant, he, he, one of the Kodan officers turned to one of the other and says, like, in Kodan, how much long must we endure this fool? And it's a split-second moment, but it's one of my favorite because the Kodan are just, like, they're really good. Like, you can tell they're really good enemies. They're really, like, a powerful military operation. And the only reason they're keeping him around is, like, they he's got the key to them breaking through a defense. 
you know, like, so without them, they wouldn't be able to break through the frontier. So they only have so much patience. And, you know, I, I like that because you've got a, an enemy that wipes out all the starfighters by destroying their base without having to launch a single one of their own fighters because they send them basically like they launch like a what would essentially be like an artillery or a missile attack. I think they use uh, an asteroid that's a bit of a projectile and, and throw it into the starbase. And you know this is a scary enemy. And the fight is and the fight at the end is done well. Alex and Greg they're one against a hundred so to speak. They play things smart by hiding in an asteroid to let the mothership pass, and then they do their best to launch a surprise attack. Alex is great, but he's not perfect, but he gets better as the battle goes on, and by the end, it's still not over. There's still more fight. In fact, that's one of the two things that bugs me about this film. The other thing is that I don't think it's long enough. Um, the Last Starfighter is 101 minutes. Uh, by contrast, The Last Jedi was 152 minutes. Star Trek Three was 105 minutes. Wrath of Khan had been 112. So there was the potential to add maybe 50 to 20 minutes to The Last Starfire. And I think if Castle and the studio, well, they should have taken it if they had the opportunity because it might have just given it just a little more oomph to make this even better. But at the same time, it's a tight, fun movie. It gets overlooked too often when listing great science fiction flicks from my childhood. And I'm glad I was able to give it at least some of its due here. Now, I said there was no sequel, probably because it didn't do monumentally well. And there's setup for a sequel, right? Because I just said, you know, there's still more fight left. He, he won a battle but did not win the war. No sequel ever came up. There were plans for those things. There were plans for tie-ins beyond what we have. And that's what I'm going to get to after this. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com And I'm back. So while The Last Starfighter didn't have the merchandising push that Return of the Jedi had had the year before, there were at least a couple of things you could pick up if you wanted your fix. I already mentioned the storybook, which I had, but two other readily available pieces, which I do have now, 
were the novelization by Alan Dean Foster and the comic book adaptation that was published in Marvel's Super Special Number 31, and also as a three-issue miniseries. I managed to get a copy of the Marvel Super Special on the cheap off of eBay prior to prepping this episode, and it's... Well, it's not worth more than the couple of bucks that I paid for it. You could probably find a miniseries in 50-cent bins or dollar bins or something. And if you're really looking for it, pick it up. The cover is by Jackson Geis. It has some pretty good renditions of the characters and ships. Geis, however, does not do the interior art. That's Brett Blevins and Tony Sammons, who are working off an adaptation script by Bill Mantlow. To round out the credits, Rick Parker lettered Christine Scheele colored, and your editorial team was Tom DeFalco and Elliot Brown, with Jim Shooter being the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time. Mantlo's script follows the movie more or less to the letter, and while I'm familiar with Blevins' Batman work during the 90s when he was the regular artist on Shadow of the Bat, this adaptation suffers from the same problems that I had with the adaptation of Return of the Jedi. It's very stiff in places, and while the ships and the space battles resemble the films, the presentation isn't particularly dramatic. Plus, Blevins can't exactly get Lance Guest's likeness right, and Alex's face does seem to be con- doesn't seem to be consistent at all throughout the comic. And hey, maybe I'm spoiled because I hold the adaptations of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back to be a- up to be the gold standard of moody movie adaptations, and those are... Well, they're just great, and they make those movies come off the page. And no offense to Blevins and Salmons, but I would have loved to have seen what other art team would have done with this. Like Michael Golden, or Walt Simonson and Tom Palmer. You know, somebody who had done something on the science fiction level. Alan Dean Foster's novelization fares much better than the comic book adaptation. And this is coming from someone who hasn't read a whole lot of movie novelizations in his time. I own a few mainly those from the Star Trek and Star Wars movies. I plan on reading the ones that I have or rereading some others, but whenever I see a work like this, I try to see how faithful it is to the source material as well as might add to it. Foster does it, and Foster's done a lot of these in his time, by the way, but Foster does a great job of getting into our protagonist's head. He makes him just as likable as Lance Guest does. Plus, there are a few things that are fleshed out in the novelization that help the movie make a little bit more sense. One small bit is Alex's, sec- Alex's success on the video game. In the film, he's champion of the game and at one point breaks the record on it. Now, when you think of classic video games, it's not something you'd be doing if you already had the high score on the machine. You're just beating your own high score all the time. There's There was no internet at the time in 1984 to maybe have a sort of a worldwide record of who was doing what on Starfire. What Foster does in the novel is go for the more realistic bit of having Alex play until he hits what was called the kill screen. And this means that he scores so high that he maxes out the memory for the game and the game becomes unplayable. But a kill screen isn't in the only is the only change. Uh, the biggest one between the, the novelization and the film is that the Ryland Star League, uh, I mean, it exists, it's, it's what it is. In the film, it's not very big and it's not explained why this group of rebel fighters who fits in like the briefing room that's about as big as the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars is all that stands between the frontier and total annihilation by the Kodan. In Star Wars, the Rebel Alliance room is small because it's a small band of rebel. I mean, it's, it's not a very big fighting group. And, and that's always been implied about the Rebel Alliance. But here, like, the Ryland Star League is supposed to be something... I mean, you have that line, and you're thinking something along the line of, I don't know, Starfleet, right? 
what Foster does is shows uh, he shows us that Rylos had become more or less a pacifist world a long time ago. So they weren't prepared for a full-scale war. They had recruiting problems, and they weren't using the most up-to-date technology. And even the rousing speech that results in the victory or death chant, the one I played at the very beginning of the episode, it's given uneasily in the book by the head of the Star League because he's not a great orator. He's a pacifist. He, he can't engage in this war mentality. And that's why Centauri came up with the idea for the video games, a way to recruit people that didn't involve, you know, from from areas of the galaxy that um, might, you know, in a, in a part of the galaxy where people weren't used to war. It's also a reason that they're all easily destroyed by Xur. And honestly, having flesh, that fleshed out speaks to the desperation that the League feels throughout the story, and why Alex truly serves as a last hope. Foster also has the frontier more, be more of a political border and less of a physical wall in space. And his betrayal, uh, Zor's betrayal, is something along the lines of giving Kodan some classified codes that will aid in Rylos' defeat. So he grounds it a little more in reality than sort of the visuals that we see in the film. Foster also expands the fight at the end. He tweaks the final defeat of the Kodan. In the film, they're just sitting ducks in space after using the uh, the Death Blossom. This is Alex and, and Grig in the, in, the, in the Gunstar. And what Grig does, he just basically rewires a bunch of stuff like he's Scotty, and then all of a sudden everything's back online. In the novelization, it's way more desperate of a move. So they, they use the um, the Death Blossom, and the Kodan are about to ram the Gunstar. Grig tells Alex that all that is running is life support, and they may have a chance to survive if they turn life support off for just a few moments so that they do have the juice to maneuver themselves out of the way. Alex orders him to do it, and they maneuver it, and they have enough energy to get a shot off all with the danger of suffocating to death and freezing to death like you know he foster's narration really makes it a point to mention how alex's spacesuit literally saved him from the vacuum because life support was off and then they turn life support back on and and they eventually recharge and refuel after the destruction of the mothership and it that's stuff like that makes the novelization a, uh, a solid read especially if you know the story of the movie pretty well. Now, beyond the novelization and the comic adaptation and the storybook, there were plans for other things. Uh, the site Great Freaking Robot has a great post on an aborted toy line that Galoob had used um, and come up with but never released, and they were using like the G.I. Joe posable 4-inch figure model. They had figures for most of the movie's characters with the aliens looking especially good, I will say, and I wanted to say they planned a gun star, but it wasn't in their post. Uh, there were also video games planned. In fact, one was announced in the credits of the film, but was never produced. Uh, according to Wikipedia, if released, the, the game would have been an Atari's first 3D polygonal arcade game to use a Motorola 68000 as the CPU. Gameplay would have been taken from the game scenes and the space battle scenes in the film and would have included the same controller that was used on the first Star Wars arcade game, which a lot of us have very fond memories of. The game was abandoned once Atari representatives saw the film in post-production and decided it was not going to be a financial success. And at that time, Atari was starting to hurt. This, Like I said, the video game crash occurred in 83, and then by the time this came out in 84, it really was, the market really had bottomed out in a big way. 
There were home releases planned, by the way, again, but after the uh, Atari uh, arcade game was canned, the efforts for both the 2600 and the 5200 game system were folded basically into development for other games. Uh, The 2600 game became the game Solaris, and the 5200 game was reworked into a sequel to the game Star Raiders. Uh, The Star Raiders 2 Wikipedia page has a good amount of information on the failed last Starfighter. It's not cited, so I don't know how true this is, but it does say that the original video game remained faithful to the basic plot line, standing in for the arcade game in the movie. It expanded on the movie's action by having multiple Kodan fleets attacking the League. Each fleet contained a group of deck fighters prefer protection, destroyers that attacked the cities on League planets, and a single command ship that was responsible for breaking the, breaching the frontier. The command ship left the fleet once the frontier was breached, leaving the destroyers and deck fighters to attack. The game opened in with the player in orbit above Rylos being attacked by the fighters. After defeating this initial force, pressing space opened a display on the local solar system, showing the multiple planets, the frontier, and any attacking fleets. And the joystick is used to move between the various objects on the screen, which can be selected in order to warp to them. Fleets could be attacked at any point, but there was an advantage to attacking them while they were still attempting to breach the frontier. In this case, the player immediately faced the command ship and was in a defenseless state, and destroying it before it burned its way through the frontier would leave the rest of the fleet stranded on the other side. In the upper left of the map display was an icon representing a wormhole linking to the Kodan solar system. Selecting this icon as a warp point flew the player to the Kodan system. Kodan fleets were generated by industrial sites on the planets. Flying here allowed attacks on those factories. As zebras were destroyed and the spawn rate of new fleets was reduced, when all of these were destroyed, the player won the game. Damage to the ship and energy use were replenished by flying to the local star and orbiting it. This also heated the ship up to the point where it was possible to melt it, so several trips to and from the star might be needed to fully repair the gun star. Uh, This version was never published under this title, although copies did leak out. A site called AtariProtos.com, which I'll link to in the show notes, had some stills from the awarded game. Incidentally, Nintendo would release a Last Starfighter game in 1990 for the NES. They adapted the theme to the 8-bit format, and from what video I could find on YouTube, it's a side-scroller a lot like Gradius. From what I read is an update of an old Commodore 64 game called Euridium. I honestly don't remember this coming out. I was buying NES games in 1990, but I have to imagine that this is one of those late Nintendo games that is actually valuable because possibly not a lot of people have copies. So you might be able to fetch a pretty penny for it if you put it up on eBay as opposed to, say, I don't know, Super Mario Brothers, which like everybody has. In 2007, Rogue Synapse created and released a freeware version of the game for the PC. Also built a cabinet, and I'll have links to the show notes for that. And beyond that, that's about it. Now, there were talks of a sequel many, many years later. In February 2008, according to Wikipedia, a production company called GP Entertainment added Starfighter, the sequel to the classic motion picture The Last Starfighter, to a list of projects, but then two months later, the project was reported to be, well, stuck in the pre-production phase. So essentially, we're talking development hell. It was still there as of January 2012. 
People such as Seth Rogen, Steven Spielberg, and screenwriter Gary Whitta have expressed in creating a sequel or a remake, but Jonathan Butel, who was the writer for The Last Starfighter, has allegedly indicated that he does not want a film made. The rights to the film actually have not been clearly defined due to conflicting information. Uh, multiple sources say Universal Pictures still owns the theatrical and home media distribution, while Warner Brothers, which absorbed the studio that made the film, Lorimar Pictures, in 1992, has the international distribution rights. Another source states that Universal has the option to remake the film, while Butel has sequel rights. So, further complicating the situation is a claim that both Universal and Warner Brothers each have remake and sequel rights. So nobody knows actually who has the rights to this movie, and that might be one of the things that's holding it up, especially since if it rests in the hands of the screenwriter and he doesn't want a sequel made, it might happen. Now, in, January, in July of 2015, it was reported that Butel was writing a TV reboot of the film, but it's 2018 as I recorded this, and we have not seen one word. So let's just say that any possibility for a sequel is sitting in development hell. And I could see where this is happening. This sounds, you know, this whole thing about the rights issue, which some stuff is cited and some stuff is not on, on the Wikipedia page for The Last Starfighter, but... I can see where the rights issue might be holding things up. That tends to be the case with a number of properties from the 80s, uh, especially with whose properties whose rights were originally held by a small studio or a small toy company or something and are now in the hands of maybe one or two companies. I think fans of the comic ROM Space Knight are prob probably know what I'm talking about when it comes to reprinting the Marvel stuff. Now, a sequel to The Last Starfighter would be interesting, especially if it's a next-generation type of sequel where Alex, Maggie, and maybe even Lewis are elder statesmen for a new Star League. But this is only if it's done in a way that matches the charm of the original movie. Because as much as effects have improved since 1984, the way that The Last Starfighter's story is told is so much of what makes it great. In fact... Maybe this is a rights thing, and this is holding something like this up, but I am really surprised that with all of the different licensed property comics that Boom and IDW have put out over the last 10, 15 years, I'm surprised that they haven't or another independent comic company hasn't picked up on this license and tried to create a new comic series. I mean, somebody ironed out the rights for Robotech, and that series is pretty solid i've been reading it so why not something like this it'd be great i'm not keen on reboots um but a television reboot not a terrible idea a movie reboot no 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 but a television reboot reboot again if it keeps with the tone of the original film um that might be good i mean we saw stuff in the, in the mid 90s i remember there was a show called space above and beyond that i saw a few episodes and did enjoy you know, and that was that spate of science fiction movies from, not movies, television series from the mid-90s that uh, mixed, people had mixed um, opinions on or mixed uh, mixed results with. But for the most part, you know, this, this, will, this would actually work. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if anything actually ever becomes of The Last Starfighter. But in, in the meantime, I do definitely recommend checking out the movie on Blu-ray. 
And that'll do it. Uh, I heartily recommend watching the film. I recommend tracking down the novelization. I recommend dipping into whatever you can in other video games. I recommend looking up the score on YouTube. Uh, like a number of films from the 80s, people have uploaded official soundtracks to YouTube, and Craig Safan's score is top-notch. He's obviously challenging John Williams' scores, but the main title of this has a great mix of a military feel and the feeling of, well, as best I can describe it, soaring. I mean, there are points where you'll listen to it and feel like the flight's supposed to be behind it, and that makes it really, really worth your time. I'm not done entirely yet. I, I do have one piece of feedback for the episode, and that is from Kirk Greenfield, who messaged me on Facebook regarding the last episode, which was the Jump the Shark episode. After saying how much he enjoyed it, he did offer this. Uh, enjoyed the Jump the Shark episode, but you overlooked when Wise Guy jumped the shark a couple of times. Did you watch it? Ken Wall walked and then returned, then walked, then returned, and was finally booted out, and the remaining cast couldn't support the new guy. And finally, they tried to complete reset location. People, it just failed. Um, this is me. Um, I remember Wise Guy. I, I think I remember some of this controversy, but I never really watched the show. It was probably on too late for me when I was a kid. So whatever knowledge I had of it came from reading about it in TV Guide. But thank you for adding that to the list because I love hearing stuff like that. So, And thank you, uh, special thanks to Andy Leyland. He mentioned uh, that Jump the Shark episode on a recent Palace of Glittering Delights and gave it a really good recommendation. So if you don't listen to Palace, go listen to Palace. It's over on the Choo Choo Freaks Network. Um, and if you have anything to add to the Jump the Shark episode or this episode, feel free to email me or comment on the Facebook post or the page um, or message me. I have been trying to make a concerted effort to put whatever feedback I have into the show. So that will, uh, that will definitely be read on a future episode. But for now, that'll do it. Uh, come back next month when I'll be taking a look at a couple of comic series from both DC and Marvel from the late 1980s and early 1990s that center around cops. From DC, it will be the 1987 miniseries Underworld. And from Marvel, it will be the early 1990s series Cops the Job. So come back in a month for that. Continue to check out the blog, which should be getting posted on a more regular basis as we go through 2018. And don't forget, you can now follow me on Twitter. I am at PopAff, P-O-P-A-F-F. And as always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet and Radio Network, which is the division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.